Florida is now America's corona capital, surpassing New York. The growth and transmission rate appears to be leveling off, for now. But we hit a million new cases in just two weeks. That's now four million total that we know about. The CDC estimates that we could be dealing with six to 24 times that number. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. And this isn't going anywhere anytime soon. It is absolutely absurd that on July 31st, Friday, Congress's initial enhanced unemployment benefits, including an extra $600 a week, are set to expire. And Congress still hasn't acted to keep them going. In fact, Republican senators are holding up renewal, arguing that they create a disincentive to finding a job. For 68% of people receiving it right now, they are being paid more on unemployment than they made in their job. Oh, because it's definitely a great idea to get everyone back out and about when there's a blazing coronavirus pandemic happening. Throughout this crisis, we've been told that we could have our health or we could have our economy, but not both. But it hasn't been the public health officials who've told us this. It's been the politicians who forced us to open up well before it was safe, who keep opposing mask ordinances, who keep telling us that we should be willing to sacrifice our grandparents for the economy. Tucker, no one reached out to me and said, uh, as a senior citizen, uh, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for keeping the America that all America loves for your children and grandchildren? And right now, We neither have our public health nor our economy. The virus is wreaking havoc in some of America's biggest states, and we've been setting transmission records for weeks now. What's worse is that people aren't just losing their lives. They're losing their livelihoods, not just to the virus, but to this stubborn ideology. We shouldn't have to choose between our health and our economic livelihoods. We should have both. And that's why Congress must renew these enhanced benefits. But that's just a start. In Canada, since the pandemic began, They've offered up to $2,000 a month under the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. That's in addition to a host of other programs designed to protect small businesses from shutting down. And guess what? Canada's case transmissions are far lower than ours are. And the economic consequences of the pandemic on people's livelihoods haven't been nearly as bad. Oh, and they also have single-payer health insurance, so literally nobody has lost their insurance. But that's another matter for another day. In the U.S., we should be offering the same $2,000 a month. We should be continuing small business supports for actual small businesses, unlike the Paycheck Protection Program that subsidized major corporations. And we, too, should be guaranteeing everyone health care coverage. Again, this isn't just an economic intervention. It's a public health intervention. As much as ideologically opposed politicians want to tell us otherwise, physical distancing is still the most important intervention we can offer. And guess what? Allowing people the means to stay home is a good idea right now. It's the best way to save people's lives and livelihoods. He made headlines early in the pandemic when his team at the University of Minnesota published a report suggesting that we could be in this for the long haul. So far, they've been dreadfully accurate. My guest today is Dr. Mike Osterholm, who is the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Uh, A lot of folks know him as the lead author in a study or a report that came out predicting uh, and modeling 
what might happen with this pandemic. And um, we're really lucky to have him on today because he's one of the, the countries, frankly, the world's experts in infectious disease modeling and in prediction. And so, uh, Professor Osterholm, thank you so much for making the time. Well, thank you for having me. Let's, uh, let's jump right in. Um, you know, you put out a report and th- that report uh, predicts a, either a sawtoothed up and down in the transmission of this disease or a major spike in, in transmission in the fall or that we would have waned in, um, in case transmission, but it looks like it's, it's a little bit too late for that. How are you thinking about where we're headed and what it says about uh, our ability to take this virus on um, and to get to some semblance of normal with respect to our lives? Well, first of all, we uh, recognize that this virus is here to stay. It's not going to ever be gone. Uh, I liken it in a sense to what we saw with HIV AIDS. And once it went through its initial pandemic worldwide outbreak status, it became an endemic disease uh, in some countries uh, on an ongoing basis, a much higher level than others. This virus is a respiratory transmitted virus, really posed some challenges for us early on because the only real model we had for a respiratory transmitted pandemic virus was influenza. And we have a lot of data on that. And so when we initially looked at this, and we actually at CIDRAP, our Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, predicted on January 20th that this would be a global pandemic and that it would unfold. And pretty much it unfolded exactly as we described. In January, we said it probably wouldn't really show up around the world until early March, not because it wasn't being transmitted, but because it would take that long a time before enough cases would be recognized in any area to actually be clinically detected and uh, diagnosed as such. And it really happened as we thought. Then we started seeing all this uh, kind of house on fire activity in a number of areas around the world. And the question was, is this going to be like an influenza pandemic where you have a first big wave where for no reason by human activity, the wave suddenly dissipates, meaning that it is like a true wave. And that's what influenza has done. Only then after you have a trough of cases, that in-between wave segment, then it comes back three to four months later with a bit much, usually a much larger wave. And so we laid that out as one scenario, not a model. We didn't model this. We just said, okay, if we have four to 5% of the population infected, and that was back in late March, early April, how are we going to proceed to get to 50 to 70% of the population needed to become infected and hopefully develop durable immunity to, in fact, experience herd immunity, a slowdown of cases because we had enough human immune rods in the virus reaction to slow it down. Or, of course, a vaccine could do that too. But if we didn't have a vaccine, what would it take? So we knew that kind of viral gravity was going to drive this thing from that 5% level to the 50 to 70% level one way or another. And so we said, could it be like influenza? That's one model. The other two, we said, well, what if it's a coronavirus, which it is, which we have no experience in dealing with, would in fact it continue just transmit kind of in a slow burn, just ongoing, just like a big grass fire? Or would it become more like a major forest fire where it burns hot, some areas much larger activity in a given period, others less? All of these, of course, in part related to human mitigation strategies where, you know, if you could uh, drive down cases through distancing uh, mandates, through, you know, all masking, all these kinds of things, then that, of course, would affect where it's at and what it's doing. 
And uh, about six weeks ago, we actually came to the conclusion this was no longer going to be like influenza. There was no evidence of a wave phenomena here, that this was just a really fast burn, a hard burn. And where it had been really reduced in transmission was where these extreme efforts were undertaken to limit transmission. But that we also said that that meant that they were always going to be vulnerable to reintroduction or to, uh, in fact, cases showing back up. And in the United States, which unfortunately is the worst example of we did do the shutdown, the distancing, but we never got case numbers down to a level where then we could do the test and trace, where we could actually then try to maintain uh, that low level of cases like we see in many of the Asian countries. We're now seeing in the European countries, even in our neighbors to the north in Canada. They've been able to do that much more successfully. So we're really at a point right now globally where many of the countries that were successful in basically suppressing this are now experiencing resurgence. Tokyo, Hong Kong, Seoul, Melbourne, Australia. And we're also seeing in countries like the United States and Brazil, uh, to some degree India, where it is just on a fast burn, a heavy burn. And I don't know anything short of major lockdowns, again, that's going to actually slow that down or allow us to basically move forward with some semblance of a normal society with the cases mm-hmm. occurring without doing that. I, I want to get back to that point, but you know, you've been studying infectious disease dynamics your entire career. And unless you're older than 102, this is the biggest pandemic you've ever seen. And um, when in your in the heart of your mind, right? That less cognitive, maybe more intuitive part of your mind. After you'd heard about this outbreak in Wuhan, did you know this this might be the big one? Um, well, first of all, our center was following this even in the end of December. We were tracking what was going on in China. We have uh, an extensive network of contacts around the world. We're constantly following social media, et cetera. And so we were aware of that. In early January, in the first week, uh, you know, we many of us thought that this would be like another SARS or MERS situation where infectivity really only increases in that fifth or sixth day of illness. And that then at that point, are you concerned about transmission? If you can find cases early, you can get them isolated, stop transmission, much like we did successfully with SARS. And we continue to do with MERS. There, unfortunately, we can't get rid of the animal reservoir, the camels on the Arabian Peninsula. So we just keep having cases in humans where we at least stop additional human-to-human transmission. But by the second week of January, it was very clear to us that this was not acting like SARS or MERS. There was enough evidence emerging that there was person-to-person transmission earlier in the picture, and that as we saw more and more data coming out, particularly with the data on January 10th on the virus uh, genome and knowing what was happening, then by January 20th, seeing the person-to-person transmission in healthcare workers, I actually put a document on January 20th saying this was going to be a global pandemic and it was going to likely be very bad. And uh, so we knew then that this was going to be a situation. We put out additional uh, information the week later describing the point I made earlier that we thought that we wouldn't see much global activity for almost a month. Even though it was transmission was occurring, uh, it wouldn't be clinically recognized. And actually, I, I wrote a op-ed piece in the New York Times on February 22nd saying, wake up, world, this is a pandemic emerging. You know, we need to do what we can to prepare. So for us... We knew back in January mm. that we were going to have our hands full. And when you when you you know put out this op-ed and put out these reports, um, what was the what was the pushback that you were getting from 
politicians, public health agencies uh, around this? Or did you just feel like they kind of knew it was coming, but breaking the inertia that exists and making these huge decisions was really hard to do? Yeah, no, you ask a very uh, pertinent question because uh, much of the reaction was we were just overreacting. That was denial. And, uh, you know, we saw as a globe a general sense of, well, this is just something happening in China and it'll stay in China, just like H5N1 stayed in China or Ebola stayed in Africa or Zika stayed in the tropical countries. And I think that there was far too many people who just assumed that the rest of the world was not vulnerable to this issue. So um, it was hard. And then, of course, you had the World Health Organization at the time continuing to say, this is not a pandemic, this is not a pandemic, this is not going to be a pandemic, which uh, I understand that they were trying to do that to get people to respond. And people assumed this was a pandemic, there was nothing left to do. But we felt that just the opposite, that there was a lot to do that we could prepare. For example, on January 20th, after I put this document out, I actually had a conversation with the leadership at 3M, the largest manufacturer of N95 respirators in the world, and uh, shared the information and explained why I believe this was going to be a pandemic scenario and that we would need all the respiratory protection we can get. And on January 21st, one day later, they went 24-7, 365 days a year, full production with every piece of equipment they had. And uh, that was weeks before anyone else contacted them from a government, basically trying to improve or increase the number of N95s produced. So some places did respond. 3M was an example of a company that responded immediately to the information, but many, many, many uh, organizations, individuals felt this was a real overreaction through those first two months. And, and what's crazy to me is that we are now months into this, and 136,000 people in counting dead in the United States alone. And there are still people who think that we're overreacting. You've been working on this for a long time. And one of the hardest parts about being an epidemiologist is you almost never have good news, right? There, there's very little good news to tell. It's The best news you can tell is that the bad news is over. <laughs> um, so what do you wish you could just like incept in people's minds? so that they understood exactly what we were dealing with and the kind of resolve and collective action that we needed to take this on. Like, if you could just put that as a pre-program in people's mind, what would it be? Well, I think we're still in a collective denial of what's happening. You know, we feel like um, this is more of a earthquake or hurricane event where it'll happen, it'll be over with, and then we'll move on. You know, even if we're still in recovery, we're just going to move on. And so it's very hard to get people to understand that even if you take the best data we have today, estimating the number of people in this country who have been infected, and for that matter, around the world, the data are coming in consistently in terms of serology studies, looking at antibody, that no more than 7 to 8% of the U.S. population has been infected to date, even with everything that's happened. Uh, that may be creeping up closer to 9 or 10% with the activity of the last two to three weeks. But the bottom line is all the pain, suffering, death, and economic disruption we've had has been for this 7 to 8% of the population having been impacted. We won't experience a herd immunity response where the transmission slows down until we get to at least 50 to 70%. So think how much more we have to go. This is going to last for months. And the only thing that will change that 
is how do we get an, a, a safe and effective vaccine, which we all hope for, but we also recognize, again, coronaviruses pose real challenges with uh, durable immunity, uh, you know, what is going to be the safety factor in these vaccines, et cetera. So, so I think the message is we have to plan for the long haul. And I worry in this country that we still don't get that. We're, we're looking at this like it's next week's uh, event and then we're over with it. And that's not going to be the case at all. One of the points that you, you made earlier was that there is no real way to tamp down the runaway transmission that we're seeing in a lot of parts in the country, where, of course, there's a great deal of ideological opposition to anything that folks can interpret as a curtailing of their freedom without being able to lock down, which means that as this affects a growing number of people faster, it may, in fact, overwhelm our healthcare capacity to deal with it. I want to ask you, where... And how do we get the kind of the kind of focus on that kind of collective action? Do you feel like we're it's done for, or do you feel like there's an additional piece of information that we can offer to folks that may in fact get them to see it differently? I mean, basically I'm asking you, how do we counteract the politicization of this thing with data and evidence? Is it is it possible? Right. This is an incredibly important point. And we're at, I think, a truly inflection point in this pandemic in terms of understanding that in this country. You know, I've been saying for some time that this is not going to be a blue state or a red state issue. Ultimately, this will be a COVID-colored state issue. All of us will know that. You know, you and I, uh, busy people are driving down the freeway a little too fast, but we're late for a meeting and we come upon the scene of an accident and we see him trying to extricate someone from a car. And oh, you know, for a moment, we're kind of in that semi, you know, date of shock and we slow down and we are never going to speed again, but within a day and a half, we're late again, and we're back to a little over too fast. That's one reaction. On the other hand, if you get a call one night and you find out that one of your loved ones, a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, a son, or a daughter, have been killed by a drunk driver, you never, ever forget that. You never stop. And you make it your life's mission to deal with the issue of drunk driving. I think what's going to happen is right now we have a lot of people who live in the world of the extrication from the car model where basically it still really hasn't hit them yet. They may know somebody who is infected. They may sense that this is a bad thing, but, you know, it still hasn't hit home yet. All of us are going to have loved ones. All of us are going to have colleagues. All of us are going to know people who are important to us who will become very seriously ill with this virus, and unfortunately, many of them will die. That is, I think, the time when we will see that change in attitude, but that's really unfortunate if it takes that long to get there. And so I don't think there's any appetite in this country, none, to have another shutdown. I understand the economic havoc that that causes, the pain, the suffering, the lost jobs, the businesses, the, the people who mental health-wise are on the edge because of that. But as an infectious disease epidemiologist, I'm just sitting here telling you, I don't know what else there is that we can do that really is going to impact this. And right now, as you so well know, we have many of our intensive care units in many locations in this country that have gone off the case cliff, meaning where they now have more patients and they can provide uh, you know, high quality care to. They may have more beds, but they don't have the intensivists, uh, whether they be doctors, nurses, other staff members that can provide the care. And so 
uh, we're going to see more and more of this. Uh, the other thing we're going to start to see, uh, and it's going to increase, I think, substantially, is the number of people who have heart attacks, who have strokes, who have can- needed cancer treatment, uh, who are injured in accidents, who are going to need care that aren't going to get it, or they're going to get substandard care because of the situation where healthcare systems are overwhelmed. Hopefully, these will all be reasons why people will understand we've got to learn from the rest of the world. You know, I wish we were in a day like Hong Kong right now, where yesterday they had the highest number of new cases at 64 cases in one day. Oh my, we had 74,000 cases yesterday. You know, what could we do if we were only trying to track down, even adjusted for population, you know, that smaller number of cases? And so I think that we have to learn from the rest of the world that has lockdown, got the number of cases down to a level of one to four per 100,000 population, and then to use test and trace uh, along with other mitigation strategies, you know, wear your, wear your mask, et cetera, you know, distance as much as you can. I worry that we're avoiding that particular uh, recommendation because that's by far the best of all, distance, distance, distance. Um, you know, we've got to get that down. And if we don't, we're going to continue the course we're on right now, which is only going to get worse. One aspect uh, of this that I think sometimes we don't talk as much about on the public health or epidemiological side is the forcing function that a lot of particularly low-income Americans feel to be out there working. Because, of course, you know if you're earning $11 an hour and you can't do your work behind a computer, your argument will always be, well, that's great. I'd love to stay home and, and protect my life, but then I would lose my livelihood one effort early on in the pandemic was to offer augmented and improved unemployment and a $1,200 check to folks earning less than a certain threshold. That'll expire in the end of July. How critical is it that we pay attention to the inequities in the privilege of being able to social distance um, and that we empower people via the socioeconomic means to stay home and protect themselves uh, and get this right in the ability to actually go forward with some of these lockdowns that might bring down the viral transmission. Yeah, well, if I could answer that succinctly on a scale of one to 10, how important that is with 10 being the most important, it's a 12. Absolutely critical. And I think that that's one of the things we're also recognizing with generational transmission. You know, oftentimes it's the people in the lowest socioeconomic status. It's a class issue where we have multi-generational people living in one home or one apartment because that's all they can afford. And so the essential worker goes to work, comes back home, brings the virus back. There's no way to distance in a house like that or an apartment like that. And then lo and behold, we see additional transmission that results in more serious illness and deaths. I think this is a very important point. I can't tell you right now how many parents I've talked to uh, who have reached out to me uh, in our center about school openings. And they have a grave concern about will schools reopen because of the fact if they don't, they're going to lose their jobs because they don't have any other child care available other than grandpa or grandma, which they're very concerned about because that is the very, again, risk factor that we're trying to avoid. And so I think that we haven't paid nearly enough attention yet to the socioeconomic issues of what are you an essential worker? What does that mean? What for those of us that have the luxury of working at a computer at home, how do we deal with this virus versus those that don't? And I think this is really exposing and the underbelly of our social, economic, and 
and class issues in this country. Those who are really taking the brunt of this pandemic are the ones that are keeping everyday life going for many of us who have the luxury of being able to stay home. Right. And who tend to be black and brown Americans, that explains the deep disparity that we've seen. Uh, Last two questions I want to ask you are, you know, there has been a, a conversation. I spoke with Dr. Anthony Fauci last week and a conversation about the way we talk about public health and some of the mistrust in public health authorities because of uh, changing advice about masks. How should we in, in the world where we're discussing in real time a changing picture about COVID-19, how do we need to be thinking about explaining science even as we're explaining the outcomes of good science? Well, you know, I worry a great deal that we're allowing policy to form our science as opposed to science forming our policy. Let me just take the issue of, of mass. You know, I very strongly support wearing cloth face coverings. I do not support wearing surgical masks or N95s because we have major shortages in our healthcare workers group right now. I mean, we have infection control issues right here in our own state. Um, we have nurses and doctors that ICUs are wearing their N95s 10 consecutive days because they have no other ones. I mean, that's happening right now. So let's just say that. So if you look at cloth face coverings, though, originally this all started by CDC saying wear them so that you don't transmit particularly larger particles if you're asymptomatic. And today, if you listen to the morning media, you'll hear it's almost equivalent to a vaccine. If everybody just wore a mask, we'd drive this thing down at three to four weeks, okay? And the bottom line is the data still are, I think, very limited in terms of how well they work. If you look at the kinds of studies that have been done, the quality has been very poor. I mean, one that's getting cited right now by the, uh, you know, was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, 50-some experts have sent a letter in demanding it be retracted. It was such poor quality. And yet it's the one that everyone is citing right now is an example of that. There was a meta-analysis done by Lancet that basically uh, looked at 172 studies on respiratory protection. Only two of them involved community, all the rest were healthcare, and none of them involved cloth face coverings. So my point is, I don't think we know yet how well they work, but that use them. You know, if there's no harm, use them. But don't also then make them be what I would call the definitive answer. And it's almost taken on the status. I mean, when the director of the CDC says, if everybody just masked, we'd drive this virus into the ground in four to six weeks, I think that's a, a dangerous statement. And I say that very carefully because I don't want people to ever forget the distancing is still the most important thing. In addition, we have seen in a study we did, over 25% of all the people wearing cloth face coverings today wear them under their nose. I mean, that's like fixing three of the five screen doors in your submarine, you know, so, so wear them correctly, you know, wear them correctly. So I think we still have to drive this with the best science information we have. And where we don't have it, still go ahead and make the recommendations of, of how to throw the kitchen sink at if it doesn't do harm, but also make sure that we don't oversell things to people that in a sense then may put them at higher risk because then they compromise their time or their behavior. And so to me, that's the message. Science should rule the day. And so I don't want anyone when they, we leave this, I strongly support using masks. I wear one when I'm in public. Uh, I, it's, it's very important. But don't count on it to be the thing that saves you from getting infected or not. It's part yeah. of an entire picture of things that we use. Yeah, that's, um, that is really, really powerful. And it's the point about there is no silver bullet here. There are layered interventions, all of which work together. I want to thank you so much for your time. 
today and your insight and your expertise and your leadership. Um, really grateful to you for joining us and making the time and continuing to be out there and teaching us about what we can do to, to protect ourselves and our loved ones. Uh, so thank you again. I really appreciate you being And you know what? I just want to thank you. I just want to have the opportunity to say this because in a very busy world that I live in right now, um, I have very limited time. Yours is one of those messages I don't miss. I listen to all of your work. It's uh, really well done. You you have brought a real sense of of calm and at the same time, very thoughtful and provocative information to this. So thank you for what you're doing. That's kind of you. I really appreciate that. And thank you for listening. See you later. Okay. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. Whether or not schools will open in the fall has emerged as perhaps the most contentious aspect of this pandemic. For eight hours, these are a bunch of 10-year-olds. They have to work individually. There's no group work. Honestly, we're probably not even going to be doing anything on paper because we can't pass it around. You can't collect it. Kids can't be out of their seats. I would like to see the schools open, open 100%, and we'll do it safely. We'll do it carefully. But I think we're missing the key point. It's not about what we do in schools that determines how safe our children and their educators will be, but about what's happening outside schools. The number one most important determinant of transmission in a school is the probability that someone brings COVID-19 into the school from outside. And that's simply a function of how much transmission is happening out there. By trying to focus on schools, the administration and its acolytes are once again shifting blame from the folks who really could do something about it, themselves. This week, the president made headlines for bragging about his score on a quote-unquote cognitive test. The first questions are very easy. The last questions are much more difficult, Uh, like a memory question. It's... uh, Like you'll go person, woman, man, camera, TV. That test, which I've administered too many times to count, is called a MOCA, short for Montreal Cognitive Assessment. It's not a test for intelligence. So what does mochatest.org say about when a MOCA test should be used? And I quote, when a patient starts to experience memory loss and other forms of cognitive decline. Why do I bring this up? Because this is what happens when you ignore science. Science beats you. You think you're bragging about how smart you are when you're actually telling America how hard you found a test designed for people with cognitive decline. If you want to save America from this, join us at Vote Save America, where you can adopt a swing state. But of course, the only state you should adopt is the great state of Michigan. Why? Boating, cars, Motown, and because we lost Michigan by a mere 10,704 votes in 2016. Join me on Team Michigan and go on to votesaveamerica.com to sign up. This week, we're going extra hard to make sure that every last vote is counted. Go to votesaveamerica.com slash everylastvote to find out what you can do. Oh, and if you haven't heard Al Franken's new podcast, I really do hope you'll check it out. He and I had an opportunity a couple weeks ago to sit down and talk about the pandemic and what we need to do to take it on. I hope you'll check it out. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. Our theme song is by Taki Asuzawa and Alex Uguiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.